good morning. Long time no see. Yeah, indeed. I just want to say, first of all, before we get started, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Congratulations on your latest release. And, uh, you know, it seems like since the last time we talked, this experiment has just started to get a little bit more efficient as time has gone on. And I feel like, wow, I'm really excited to have you get back because the the groove is in place now. Like everything is kind of established a little bit, whereas before it felt like I was just kind of fumbling my way through everything. So also thank you for that. You put up with me in like episode eight episode eight of this thing which is amazing so uh let's let's talk about head of a gorgon which i must say i mean it kind of took me aback because it's such a powerful work and it's so beautiful and obviously we're going to talk at length about it but holy shit well done um this is just a, a great a great piece of work now that this is out in the world uh because this has been with you for so long um, and from what I gather, you've been working on this for about 10 years or so, and correct me if I'm wrong. What is, what is the feeling that you're left with as this has gone into the world for the last couple of months? Thank God it's done. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, yeah. And it was actually more than a decade, but it's like, oh, sure. just thank God. Like, so it, it's funny because I, I guess in some respects, I'm, I don't, I don't know that many writers think of it like I do, but I have just a couple projects that I sort of feel like I I want this out in the world or at least out of me before I die. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this was, this was one, my memoir is the other. If I never write after that again, which I doubt, but if I don't, (laughs) like, I don't have any like high priority, like death projects Mm. like must accomplish like before i die Mm -hmm. hopefully the universe will allow this um (laughs) not strike me down before yeah but yeah um it's it's a huge sense of just relief like Mm -hmm. i there comes a point in time especially when you work on a project this long where you just really want to be done and Mm -hmm. it's not um I mean, I didn't want to rush it because of the subject matter mm-hmm. and the, you know, the importance of the subject matter and really wanting to do it justice and do my best to get it right, at least from my perspective and experience um, as best I could. But at a certain point, like you just got to be done. Like I, right. I, I can't keep doing this yeah. forever. And what's that stopping point? That that really is a curious thing of this whole thing is there's more in there. I'm sure there's there's more pieces that are coming together to want to add more to this piece. But at what point did you say this is enough for what this is? You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I know for some writers, they, they really do feel like what you're talking about. Like they finish a book and then they feel like, oh, they had these extra pieces that yeah. they wish they could have included. And sometimes they release like later editions, especially if it's like ebook, you can do that. I actually don't have that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, and it probably does have something to do with the fact that I just spent so much time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't like a, so there's the urgency to like, I want to get this book out there before I die, but yeah. not the urgency to rush the story from my, from my end. And to like, like, I really, 
wanted and needed in many ways to sit with it and and let the pieces kind of reveal themselves to me, which doesn't mean that I'll never write about sexual violence again, but to say that I really do very much feel that this story is complete. And I think in large part it is because I took the time to, to just let it simmer. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it, so that, that's sort of, I guess, my end result. Yeah. And I have to agree with you because as I read this and thank you for sending me that copy, I was just so relieved to be able to take a look at it before we did the interview because the structure of this thing is just beautiful. And I say this as a playwright, screenwriter, somebody who just loves structure so much. The the thing is just built in such a way that we follow it chronologically. There's this, this beautiful forward motion to it. But at the same time, it seems like you are giving these pieces of trauma and memory and, and uh, persons a shape. Whereas, I mean, the, the way that I kind of imagine some of these things, having gone through difficult experiences might be akin to having fragments of something. And then, and then as you're putting it together, it's, it's like, oh, this is the way that it needs to be presented. It needs to be a beginning, middle and end because a lot of folks, I imagine, and, and you'll have to kind of help me out with that if you think that that's something uh, that you may have perceived before. It, it needed a shape like that with, with that kind of beginning, middle and end. Is that too far from what you originally started with? No, not at all. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's pretty accurate um, as far as what I was trying to, to shape. So one of the, the benefits of taking a, a myth and, and sort of reimagining it um, is that you can bring parts of your truth and parts of real life, but then you also get the distance of creating something that's fiction, right? So, so this book very much is a, a melding of, you know, nonfiction and fiction of, you know, memory, whether my own other people, you know, experiences, and then, you know, just this, this wholly created thing. And by taking that approach, you have a sort of distance that I think allows you to, at least for me anyway, mm-hmm. um, kind of look at overall story as not so close to you that you can't really shape it in a way that makes it more accessible. And for me, the accessibility, I mean, as far as poetry goes, there's there's always that question of, is this really accessible and how mm-hmm. accessible can you really make poetry? Mm-hmm. But um, because I have that fiction background and because I, I read Ann Carson's autobiography of Red and that really influenced this work mm. um, and it's a novel and verse, you know, I really felt like that sort of narrative arc could really benefit people who don't normally read poetry to be guided through a, a poetry collection in a way that makes sense and is familiar to them. And that's what that narrative art provides. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I hope that I accomplish that goal of making the poetry more accessible for people because it really is intended for um, survivors who are at a certain point in their own healing and recovery, you know, not somebody who's just been traumatized because this will not sure. <laughs> be a, yeah. a positive 
um, right. which is why the trigger warning is there in the, the physical copy has a trigger, warning, um, which you'll see once it, it finally does arrive. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that just overall that, that sort of marrying of the fact and fiction helped me kind of create a distance to be able to create a story that more or less didn't traumatize me in, in creating yeah. it. And then also build a story that is hopefully more accessible because it has a narrative arc for people who are not typically readers of poetry. Mm -hmm. And I think you were very, very successful with that because one of the things that I learned as after our first interview where you introduced me to so many wonderful poets and really like my education started, you know, proper education when I interviewed you because you just connected me with so many new poets and, and new work to read that uh, I learned how you were a disciple of Louise Gluck um, <laughs> a little bit. And it makes sense oh, because so it feels yeah. like your your text is has that level of approachability and there's also this sense that it's not poetic for the sense of being poetic. It is what the words need to be and, and no more than that. You know, austere in the right way. I just was so taken by the way that you could talk about these things without without pushing anyone away from what was happening in, in these words. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, well, first off, thank you for the kind words. And I'm glad that, you know, you found like any of my ramblings helpful. I, I'm <laughs> grateful. When people find like anything that I do helpful, it's like, okay, like I didn't completely, awesome. like, you know, blow it for this person. That's, that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, just as, as much as like, there's, an enthusiasm like coming from you and the kind words that you've shared about this work. I think that there are still people who would look at this and be completely like, no, like mm -hmm. just alienated from it. Mm -hmm. um, or just, they don't want to access what's happening. And they, for whatever reason, it may be sure. like self-protection. It may be like complete sexism and misogyny. I mean, it could, it, there's a spectrum, right? Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, my hope was that, you know, my approach would resonate with readers, but, um, but I also acknowledge like, it's, it's not going to resonate with everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's work ever really does. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, certainly there are more popular writers, um, whose work resonates with a broader majority but I mean, like even Stephen King, like, you know, there are people who don't like Stephen King. Like, I mean, you know, there, there's there's there, there's always going to be somebody out there who it just like your your words, your syntax, your style, your whatever, just like your vibe, your aesthetic just doesn't work. for them. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I don't have any control over that. Um, I I have. uh spent a lot of time trying to make my work the work that I want to read and also hope that in doing that, the folks who maybe sort of think like me or are drawn to similar aesthetics to, as I am are going to connect with that the same way. Again, like my primary audience for this ideally is fellow survivors. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of in fact, I've been 
I've been reading a lot of other people's work um, over the years, but especially lately, like within the past, I want to say like six months or so, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm planning something. I have something in the works mm-hmm. for um, April. Uh, so um, I've, I've been kind of familiarizing myself with other uh and re-familiarizing in, in many ways, because like I said, I've been reading this this type of work. Whenever I've found collections or even individual poems, I've I've really devoured it. And a lot of times what I feel like I'm I'm seeing or experiencing from um writers who are specifically uh, writing from the experience of sur- like, like they basically said, like, yes, I, I, I identify as a survivor and this is maybe not the actual experience, but I'm basing this work off of experiences that I myself have had. Um, there's almost like this sort of like coding that mm. seems to go into this type of work. And as I read that sort of work and I see how those things are sort of built in there the way I would like to think that I'm doing so, that I've done something similar and that that's what I'm picking up on in other people's work mm-hmm. um, as I'm reading it. But, but that sort of like almost like coded like language or coded experience that if you've, it's like, like being part of a, 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 a like like an inside it's, it's a secret of, handshake that you're talking yeah about. sort of like yeah. that exactly yeah um and i i like i said there are some things in my book that that are there for people who maybe kind of have either experienced have experienced it and maybe are more um thorough or like deeper diver readers you know like mm. maybe somebody who regularly reads poetry and and has a maybe deeper uh, like fundamental understanding than than somebody who who like has never picked up a book of poetry before um but i i I, that's what i'm noticing and it's it's been really interesting to kind of pick up on that sort of it's not a common experience from the perspective of like we each have our own like unique experiences but the coding of some of the experiences and sort of the this the flares that sort of go up like when i read other people's work now is very interesting to me and i see this common sort of approach mm. as it were yeah do you think it relates sort of to the idea, not not just in the language itself, but in the sort of distance that has to happen in the work like you were mentioning before by using the myth as sort of like a, a device, if you will, you, you kind of remove yourself a little bit. Do you think it has something to do with that kind of idea where the author has to create the language? using that device to to tell you about something through through the work i mean i don't know if i'm explaining myself right on that yeah no i mean i i I get what you're saying and i can't i mean i can't speak for why other writers do the things they do um and that may very well be it uh for for some other folks like I, i i see a lot of people who write about this and are survivors 
Um, I feel like that that work is very much more direct. Like it doesn't necessarily kind of, I mean, not always, but it doesn't necessarily meld with this concept of, of myth or like, you know, fairy tale folklore kind of dr- like melding these two things together in order to create sort of like a separate, separately existing narrative from the personal experience. Um, I think there's always a distance between the actual writer and the speaker or narrator. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And and so that may also be playing a, a part, but also I, I think at least for me, um, the, the sort of like, Hmm. it's it's kind of hard to to put words to mm. i guess i like the the experience the experiences are something that there there's like this usually i mean I, again i can't speak for everybody's actual experiences but usually there's this sort of like secretive kind of component, right? Like, so predators rely on their victims secrecy, right? And, and I think in maybe some kind of weird way, maybe there's an element of that. And again, I only want to speak for myself on this because I, Uh you know, I don't, I don't understand and can't speak for other people's approaches, but I think that there, like, when somebody, I, I, I like, it, it, from a lighter perspective, yeah. As soon yeah. as somebody like tells you, like, oh hey, can you keep a secret? Mm. Or like, hey, okay, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't tell anybody else, mm. right? What's the first thing that you want to do? You want to go and tell somebody, right? It's like Somehow, a ticking time bomb. Some, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So I think maybe in some weird psychological way, and again, I'm only speaking for myself here, Mm -hmm. maybe in some weird psychological way, it's like the second that somebody says, like, you need to keep a secret, your mind starts thinking of ways to reveal that secret Mm. without revealing the secret. Right. And maybe that's what I'm trying to say or like communicate with respect to this sort of like coding it's like i know a person is telling me something but they're telling it to me in such a way that it's it's not direct and it's almost like you have to to speak the language or you have to to know like the secret handshake in order to be able to fully access um what's really going on here absolutely that makes sense yeah yeah because at that point it seems like the work has to operate on on two completely different levels at least you know again this is this is one perspective so not to encompass any or or codify the way that this kind of work works but um at least from your experience it seems like the work had to operate on those those two levels in a way I mean, I don't know if it had to. I just know that it did. Well, <laughs> it well maybe me. organically uh, it came to be that way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think for for me, part an important part of this this narrative is this idea or this concept that you know there 
the predator does, predators, at least in, in the case of Hedvigorgan, they do demand secrecy. They do demand, you know, and, and so then as a survivor, you're constantly pushing back against that in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you know, like the, the, the opening of the book, the beginning section of the book where, you know, Medusa is, is revealing these things like the, the rock that's there mm-hmm. you know, in plain view oh, and the, the, the things that go over the name and the notebook, yeah. you know, th- there are these ways that, that the survivor is revealing what has happened and what continues to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's an important part because I think too, yeah. if you're coming at this collection and you have suspicions about something happening in like, like let's say you're an adult and you're reading this and you know, you've always kind of gotten a weird vibe. I'm not saying like, look, I'm not saying like use my book to like, you know, yeah, to, or, to sniff or something out, like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. That, that's not, but, but I think that, you know, making sense of some of the things that you see or experience, depending on the perspective you're coming from at that early age, like I look back and I'm like, oh my God, like that person, like totally experienced this. Like, and now it's like, it's all kind of, because, because of that, those, I'm revealing the secret, but I'm not telling you the secret Mm -hmm. i'm i'm revealing it in this other way and i think that's a really important kind of component for people to be aware of for various reasons again not you're not going to like go and like do your own svu Mm -hmm. um but you know that that kind of awareness um Mm -hmm. i think can help people kind of you know make sense of some things right whether it's in their own life or other people's lives um what they do with that greater awareness is not up to me. I mean, again, I'm not suggesting vigilantism or sure, <laughs> sure. but I think, um, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think, yeah, no, just, just being able to kind of better understand maybe what some of this stuff actually means mm-hmm. and that this is an important component of the experience. Um, and doing with like just greater awareness again, like right. raising awareness about these experiences right. and, and bringing this, this work to survivors in the hopes that, you know, it, it can help them. Mm-hmm. Those are my goals. Yeah. And I think you did that uh, so remarkably well, but you just identified why the poem, the collector out of most of them for me was the one that stood out in my mind because of those very things that you were saying. And the, I guess the the tangibleness of that situation and the detail of something, you know, that, that might be, I don't know if it's innocuous is the word, but but like just a rock, you know, and, and mm-hmm. putting it in plain sight. I mean, that is such a um, vivid moment that stands out in the work, but but with the context that you've added with the rest of the, the poem, I mean, and the where it belongs in this whole book i mean for me is is just one of my favorites and one of the revelations because of what it does for the whole um for the whole collection but at the beginning one of the things that i just want to comment on real quick is the establishing of the themes and the visuals throughout the whole thing that you're working with throughout the whole thing um 
there is a kind of betrayal and obviously like transfiguration transformation is a big part of the piece but do you feel like in particular with water it it just seemed to be the thing that the water was the element that is there for you to give you life but then there is a uh, turn to that to that visual and it takes on a different form i'm curious how you began to gather these visuals um for the the work yeah yeah so some of them you know came from you know real contemporary life you know the the things around me um but like the the water the ocean the sea that that is very much rooted in the original myth so poseidon being the god of the ocean Mm -hmm. I, i i very much felt and and knew that that was going to be part of this story um especially like the the i mean not to get too graphic or anything mm. like that or potentially gross but the the, the salt water component mm. particularly as yeah. it relates to uh right. you know physical sure sure <laughs> yeah and, and art. right it's got to be acknowledged uh, yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh that that for me it, it was like too kind of i mean i i don't know like i i think sometimes like you know when people created these like stories first off like what were they thinking like mm-hmm. what could they possibly been thinking like right. i mean yeah you look at the ocean and and i guess back then you think well there's got to be somebody who rules over this thing right i mean yeah <laughs> so yeah. big like and so, right. so certainly if you believe in many gods, then there's got to be one for this, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but, but just, you know, it, it, it's just, to me, it seemed so um, perfect in conjunction with the, the, the kind of these stories about sexual violence, not perfect because it's happening, because obviously we don't want those things to happen. Right. But from the perspective of, you know, again, you've got this sort of violent saltwater bursting, just, mm-hmm. you know, deliberately in my book made kind of gross and grotesque, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. paired with this, this violent rapist god of, fittingly, mm-hmm. the ocean. Yeah. Um, so some of this, some of this kind of very much handed itself to me mm-hmm. um and then there you know again the the more contemporary stuff like i had <laughs> there was a point in time where i really had to kind of like figure out like okay because i'm imagining her living close to the sea or on the coast or something like that but also there's this this sort of deserty lack of water component mm. um that is very necessary and very contemporary and very much related to my life experience that felt necessary and important. So I had to start kind of also thinking like rethinking of the landscapes and like, okay, so like where, where would that place physically be um, where you've got desert and coast? And of course for me, California having lived there was Mm. um, now California is not mentioned in head of the Gorgon. But in one of the earlier drafts of the poem uh, that is now part of the exchange between Medusa and Poseidon, the series of letters, 
that poem was set um, in California, even mm-hmm. though I was actually drawing from an experience in Arizona. So it's mm-hmm. like, right. uh, you know, it's like I need I need to kind of at least conceptualize a state that yeah. contains right that you know would be within driving distance, and certainly that's the case. For, I mean, California, you know, you can be at the water, you can be in the snow, you can be in the desert, you can be in like any number of, of, uh, scenic environments mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> within a couple hours drive all in a single state. And so, um, that was obviously not part of the original Medusa myth, mm-hmm. but was something that I had to sort of kind of think of like, like you would as, as if you're a fiction writer and you're kind of conceptualizing a novel, you need to start thinking about and building out at least in your own mind, a sense of place. Mm-hmm that was something that I had to do for some of the imagery in the background um, for the more contemporary stuff. Yeah. And that's such a a great springboard because just to back, back up just a moment to, to the myth. I mean, you said something that was so powerful. I mean, by using this myth in particular, you, you go back to this perennial feeling, this thought of, of the violence that doesn't go away because that is ingrained in the species almost. And in some fatalistic way, it almost feels like this is something to always be vigilant against. But um, one of the things that I, that really stuck in my mind was you noticed a transformation in not just the protagonist of this work, but in the language of it, right in that turn that that was so beautifully done um, where the tone changed completely. Could you elaborate a little bit on making that kind of decision to switch language, not just completely, but, you know, in, in some ways? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for, thank you for noticing. And again, for, for all the uh, kind words. Um, I did want to say, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is important touching on your earlier point it is important to be constantly vigilant because unfortunately if i'm still writing about this now it means that it's still too prevalent it still hasn't gone away Mm -hmm. and um there's still a lot of work to be done to address it so yes i mean i I very much uh you know (laughs) realize that truth Mm -hmm. um as unfortunate and awful as it is um as far as the language shifting goes so i guess for me the the and part of the reason that the book took me so long to write is because i didn't have the answers until i did mm-hmm. and you kind of have to um go through your own journey and process whatever that looks like for you in order to to sort of get there but um i'm very grateful that i i sort of went through my own sort of, I guess, mental transformation in many ways, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to come out on the other side of some of my life experiences and be able to kind of look at them and process them and sort of in in a weird way, maybe interact with them in a different way um, that sort of, I guess, allows me to kind of just carry on with my life in a way Mm. that allows me to love myself and be happy, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So when I was in grad school and I first started working on this project, it had a different focus. It was really focused more on the, the retellings of the myth. And at, at that point in grad school, I definitely was not the person that I needed to be in order yeah. to finish the book. Yeah. Because I, I didn't, I, I personally wasn't there yet. I hadn't kind of processed a lot of things, nor had I sort of experienced some of the things that had actually nothing to do with like survivorship um, that I needed to, in order to kind of look at myself as a like more like, like a fuller human being, like yeah. what does, what does, what does the sum of my experience kind of equate to? Yeah. And like, what do I do with all that? Yeah. I hadn't, I mean, even at, at 20, 29, when I graduated from my grad program, I hadn't sort of gone through some of the things that I, I was going to need to go through in order to be able to kind of ultimately try to communicate to other people that there is like something on this other side, because I myself had not reached that other side mm. at that point. And so um, the, the shift in language is really a, a, about looking at one's experience from a different mental vantage point. Mm -hmm because you're not going to be able to control what happens to your physical body like 99% of the time. Um, and that's true of not just survivors. I mean, but that's true of just life. That's true of disease. Mm -hmm. You can't control whether or not you're going to get cancer or when, mm -hmm. if you do. I mean, yeah, there are certain precautions you can take and you can eat healthy and you can mm -hmm. avoid smoking. You can do all those things, but even still, you might end up getting cancer. And did you do something wrong? Well, I don't know that you did, but here you are. And that's your physical experience now. Mm -hmm. And you have no control over that in many respects. But what you do have control over in some respects, not all respects, but some, is the mental approach you take to it, mm. the perspective that you bring to it your attitude, you know, and, and I'm not going to go all, you know, a motivational speaker here, <laughs> but, um, because especially because my motivational speaker is like boot camp lady <laughs> and not somebody that, you know, you really want to hear from. You're, you're not going to get hugs. <laughs> um, you're not going to get hugs. Sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I think, from, from what I've heard and read from a lot of other survivors, it's like there's this, this want to escape the physical body, understandably mm -hmm. so, because that's the, the physical is traumatized and then an intern traumatizes the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, all of that, right? When you have a moment, ideally you have a moment as a survivor where you realize that maybe you could make a decision to reclaim the mental aspect and thereby potentially reclaim the physical aspect. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't, again, it, it can't take away anything that was done or anything that happened, sure. but it, 
it can shift your relationship to yourself as a physical being, as a spiritual being, as a mental and emotional being. It can, it can shift your perspective. And so for me, it was really important to see the language also shift with that because it is a shift. It's a shift away from victimhood and this sort of um, connection more strictly to the physical and what physically happened Mm -hmm. and towards a, a, a greater connection and control over the mental of who you are, the, the, the mentality that you bring to the experience and, and what you can do with your mind to overcome and transform the experience of victimhood into one of survivorship. Mm. And that is sort of like the fundamental, like kind of linchpin that was behind this sort of shift deliberate shift mm-hmm. in, in sort of the language. Yeah. So I, I like to think that it reflects a shift from the, the, the deeper physical connection and victim that that's often related to victimhood to the shift into a, a greater mental awareness and control um, and into survivorship, which then comes back and sort of encapsulates the physical once again, like, yeah, I, I, I think you can sort of reclaim both, but I, at least for me, part of that was I had to control the mental mm-hmm. aspect better than I was in order to then sort of reclaim my relationship to my physical self. Right. If that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And I, I want to thank you for your, your honesty there and walking us through that because it reminds me of this thing that you said, because I was listening to the last interview we did and this idea of self-awareness was such a, like a, like a bright spot in, in the conversation because I feel like for a lot of folks who are processing some of these things, there has to be that moment where you say, I am reclaiming my life if it may have been taken away from me at some point in time, whether it's an emotional thing or a physical thing. And we, we briefly spoke about head of a gargon, but I think that you really encapsulate just the thought of, okay, I'm at the right time in my life to reclaim this. And now at this point, because obviously there, there's a lot of different perspectives that, um, or ways to approach this particular type of trauma. But for you, do you feel like the catharsis that came about in this book allows you to move forward? And we briefly touched on it earlier on, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what your stance is on the work and what it's done for you, whether you think that you're now free to move forward with a bit more openness or a bit more, um, I guess, pursuit of, of something else, let's say. Sure. Sure. You know, it's interesting because I, I think, um, you know, especially with the use of the persona and the use of the eye, you know, it very much kind of connects people in in a good way. Like it's intentional in that I wanted people to be able to insert themselves into the eye of Medusa, not the eye of the predators. Please don't be those people. (laughs) Um, because there are a couple poems that are from that, those perspectives, but I wanted people to really be able to access, 
um, the experience on, on that like very immediate first person um, level. Mm -hmm. But for me, as as the writer of the thing, the like again, like my catharsis is like completely separate from this book. Like uh. I had to kind of live life and do life and and mm -hmm. kind of handled my my business <laughs> yeah and yeah. then i was able to kind of come and say oh okay now i know how this book needs to end mm. now i know what this last section needs to be right um well the i guess the last two sections technically but um for me it was about kind of communicate communicating finally okay i i have figured out a way to be happy despite and now that I have figured out this way to be happy, despite, I want to communicate that so that hopefully other people might be able to find that same thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe the book helps them do that. Maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But that was that was one of my hopes and one of my goals in, in doing that. So the, the only, I think, catharsis for me in finishing the book and getting it out there was, okay, I achieved my goal of at least trying to get the word out there about what one version of healing might look like. Mm -hmm. But, I, but the, my actual personal healing catharsis was very much separate from the book. Now, that being mm -hmm. said, I was, I started writing the book, I think on a subconscious level, perhaps to start working through some of this stuff, but the actual work of uh, that actual work happened for me off the page. Mm -hmm. I mean, for other people, maybe different, but for me, it happens off the page. Yeah. Then I come back to the page and I say, okay, what can I share about my experience that might be helpful to other people? And, and, and that's the perspective I take when I'm on the page. But I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think journaling, for example, can be very helpful. And I I've done that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still think that that the the healing and the the catharsis happens within a person, within their yeah. mind and their body and their spirit, versus on the page. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as you put something on a page, there's immediately a distance because it's not an experience. Now it's 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 a translation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even language can't capture a physical or emotional or mental experience because it's just, it's an experience mm -hmm. and language is something separate. There's an immediate distance. So it's already a translation of that. Mm. Uh, at least for, again, from my perspective. Um, so coming back to that sort of like concept of, okay, well, what can be done then if there's this distance, between experience and language, what can be done? Well, that's what I tried to do. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, had, I had some healing. I had some catharsis. That was the, the, the actual experience. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to use this language. And unfortunately, it's not going to be able to fully capture everything that I, I experienced and hope to kind of share with everybody. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to try. And hopefully it does something. And uh, here it is. The end. Right. right. <laughs> well, I think... Uh... 
one of the great things about this was that uh, I was you've been doing the uh, I guess the the marketing circuit online. You've been making some appearances, and I I had the pleasure of watching quite a few of the readings that you did. In particular, one that stood out was the one with uh, with Lanny Stabil, where you folks were doing the Greek myth remix because she happened to have you know one one book that's sort of a, along these lines, but. You you had somebody who was a mental health professional there, you know, who kind of made some comments at the end that I feel kind of encompasses what you were trying to do. And, and she really did express what I what I think is spot on, that this is sort of like an invitation for somebody who is interested in exploring their own experiences, but not a cure for you know, for something, you know, and I I mean, I highly recommend folks check that out because listening to you read the poems gave me this added context. And I'm not sure, I guess I'm kind of digressing a little bit, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Um, Luis Gluck made me think that maybe readings are not as important as they should be. Uh, I had listened to this interview a while back sometime this summer where she was talking about how she hates doing readings because it's like another iteration is lost right um on the mm-hmm. from the poem but i'm curious if if you share the same thoughts on that like if you think that that poem kind of withers in in some way once it once it is read hmm that's interesting. And I hate to like go against like my all time poetry idol. But before I before I give a, a, an answer, I do want to say one thing about what you were talking about the, the mental health professional on that. Week. Yes. Um, yeah, very much so. Like, although I do very much want my book to be able to help people like need to make it very clear, like everybody has to do their own work. Mm-hmm. Like you don't get to like, skip the line like you don't get to to bypass like that that's the unfortunate truth about about like life i guess in many Mm -hmm. respects it's like you can read all the books and you can educate yourself however much you want Mm -hmm. and that all that's valuable i'm not saying it isn't right but you still have to do your own work you still have to, to take charge and own your own healing it's not a need and be willing to right yeah. and and you have to be willing to do that if if you're not yeah. i mean you're going to struggle right. and that's a choice too and and certainly lots of people make that choice yeah. and certainly for many years i made that choice yeah so i'm not judging anybody who makes that choice i'm simply saying it is a choice right you may not realize or recognize that but it is um but also you you need to still do your own work so yeah. So let me amend well, my, my my previous statement will be an invitation to consider because because yeah I I do believe that the work is is so powerful that it will raise the right questions for a reader who may have experienced something like this but it's not an edict to say this is your your roadmap it's a consideration that's all that's all it is if yeah if at all, I mean if it's, at all. It's, yeah it's 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 sort of like a it's a camaraderie it's a this is this is how it works for one person mm-hmm. and may end up working for you but you still have to do the work mm-hmm. like you still have to find your and this you know this also plays very heavily into the book you have to be the your own savior you have to find your own salvation like nobody else is coming to do that for you right um and 
like that, that again, while I do hope my book raises awareness and I do hope my book helps survivors in particular, there's the, the help that this book or that I could ever provide is it's, it's a fraction. Like it's, it's not like you still have to do your own work. You still have to find your own salvation and that just, just make that point. Okay. (laughs) Now going back to the book thing, um, you know, I personally enjoy um, hearing other people read mm. the poems um, in many respects more than I enjoy hearing <laughs> myself read the poems. Although I will say when I read my poems, at least I can guarantee like they're, they're more or less being read, like this is the way I intended them to be read. Mm. So like, for example, the, 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 the very first poem in the book, The Gorgon's Parting Thoughts, there is a very, very specific way that I have in mind for that poem to be read. Mm-hmm. And unless you're me and you know the full backstory, mm-hmm. or you've heard me tell the full backstory, or you've heard me read the poem, you're not going to read it, quote unquote, correctly. Uh-huh. Now, that is just correctly according to me as the author, knowing what my intention was with that piece. Right. Right. And, it, and so ultimately that doesn't matter mm-hmm. because now the book is out in the world and the work belongs to everybody. Right. Yeah. So th- there, so it's like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, so I know how I intended my poems to be read, but what I find really interesting when other people read them is what they bring mm. to the poem. And that's, that's ultimately, I think part of the goal of literature is, you know, somebody kind of brings a part of them to it as they read it, whether it's aloud or silently or whatever, like you're bringing something like, like that whole coding thing that we were talking about earlier. When I read survivors work, I have that sort of, I bring my own experience to it. And so I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm seeing something different or maybe deeper because of that. Now, am I wrong? I could be, I could be reading way too much into it because of that experience. But, um, I'd like to think I'm not, but a lot of people are, are going to do the same thing when they, they come to my work and they read my work Mm -hmm. again, whether it's aloud or silently, but particularly aloud when I've heard some other people read some of these poems, like my sister reads my poem note from the Nader really interestingly yeah. and in a way that like I know her. And so I understand like, yeah. I know where she's coming from when she reads that poem. Mm-hmm. It's a very different place than I'm coming from when I read it. Yeah. And it's a very different intention. But but it's like so fascinating and so interesting because she's bringing this totally different aspect to it that I don't bring because I'm not her. Yeah. And I so... From that perspective, I think there's real value in reading the work aloud and also having others read your work aloud. Mm. Um, you know, I, I will from time to time put different emphasis on on different things when I like like Lanny you pointed to earlier. You know, she she says, oh, you know, I read poems differently every time. And I think there's truth to mm. that. Like, I, I yeah, like definitely especially if you're like me and you manage to flub <laughs> during each poem, which is terribly unfortunate, but yet seems to be the case for me. Um, well, I didn't notice too many I, times. I, it didn't happen too many times in the ones that I was watching. Oh, God, so. I've gotten better. <laughs> I, I've improved. I give myself like a B minus now. Um, 
you know, I've moved up from like the 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 hard D to like you know C, you know, there like you be, like the last year, beginning of this year. Now, now maybe you know, maybe I'm like B minus. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I, but I can understand what, what Gook is saying when she's saying, you know, there's, there's a, you know, maybe there's something now that could be seen as being taken away, but I personally don't mm -hmm. feel that that's mm -hmm. the case. I think that there's another, or maybe what it is, again, not speaking for her or anybody else, but like, maybe what it is, is when you're when you're adding that layer of physical, like vocal reading, you're taking away a layer that was that, that more silent interior reading that perhaps, and, and certain poems do work like this, where like, if you're looking at it on a page, it works differently mm -hmm. than it does when you read. So like, for example, I have some poems in the book that technically speaking, you could read as one whole, but also in two or three different parts. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to read those poems aloud in their multiple parts. Mm -hmm. If I read them at all aloud, it would be in those, the, the, the main single. And it's not be like, not because I'm being difficult or stubborn, but just because that like, that's what makes the most sense. But mm -hmm. then on the other hand, when you look at the page, you're seeing something totally different and you're experiencing it in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that, maybe that's like, part of what she's getting at i don't know yeah, i mean again yeah. I can't. but it's a wonderful rebuttal of... though it's it's a wonderful rebuttal There's... nonetheless That's <laughs> um i think that we could talk for hours and hours and it's just such a pleasure to get to talk to you again i just got a couple more to be mindful of your time yeah. but um overall i'm curious um what you think has been successful in getting this book to the world in terms of the behind the scenes, the publication aspect of it, the the work that you did through um, through VA Press. Could you tell me a little bit about that process and, and sort of the key findings of, of that experience? Key, find key findings of that experience. Sorry, I went into. <laughs> yeah. So, OK. Um, so I think part of what you're pointing to is I, I more or less decided that I was going to handle like my whole sort of marketing publicity mm -hmm. thing, um, which is another decision that writers have to kind of think about and make. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll end up with a press that might provide you with a publicist or maybe more than one, if it's, a, you know, one of the big five, um, that is often not the case. And that is most often not the case for poets, mm -hmm. especially not yeah. the case for poets. Even when your press does have a publicist, um, and, and this is something that I, I really kind of, like I hate to say it, but I also really want people to know and understand it. Like I come from a background where I interacted with publicists and PR reps at like the highest levels. I mean, we're talking about like PR and publicists from like HP, mm -hmm. okay? like. Yeah. IBM. It's your realm in a way. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's a zone that you're very comfortable in. Well, to some degree, wouldn't you say? It's, I mean, it's, it's work that I've done. Not Now I was not that person. I was not that person at that level, but I say this because I need people to understand that I'm coming from this perspective when I make these statements. Mm. I've worked with like the, the, the best of the best in PR and publicity. I've worked with people who make six, 
figures in that world, mm -hmm. okay? And I don't think many publicists and PR folks in the literary world make that kind of money or are at that level. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't great PR folks or great publicists in the literary community. Just that if they're really that great, they're probably gonna chase the money. Yeah. <laughs> and they're gonna make the money because they can, because they're that great and that talented. Mm -hmm. Okay, that being the case, with that knowledge that I have, I realized in pursuing, so I, I did outreach to almost 30 PR agencies and indi individuals mm. within the literary community. Wow. So people who work specifically in there doing this work. And I ended up deciding to do it myself. Now, some of that is because a lot of these people, the minimum that they're going to charge you is five grand. Mm. As a poet, you're not going to make yeah. five grand. And look, I'm not saying that that ask or that amount is unfair. It's actually not because the, if you think about it from an hourly wage perspective, over the course of the amount of time that you need somebody to devote to your work to, to adequately publicize it, that's actually a pretty reasonable amount. Like if, even if you think of it as like, you're paying somebody $10 an hour. Okay. But how many hours over how many months to a year yeah. potentially yeah. that adds up really quickly. And, and I think a lot of people don't, they see the price tag and they go, yeah, it's sticker shock for sure. 100%. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. Mm -hmm. All I'm saying is, is that if you break it down from the perspective of what goes into it, I mean, I, I didn't keep track of my hours because I knew I would just be devastated. Be depressed. <laughs> I did. Um, because my, my, because I did once get paid to do this kind of work in part um, as a communications director at a university for a, a division of research and economic development. Um, and so I, and, and believe me, I, I made better money than, than 5,000 for the project or for the work. But, um, you know, it's just grueling. And people don't, I, I think if you haven't done the type of work you don't understand, just what it takes. I mean, you're talking about building lists, you're talking about cold calls or emails. Mm -hmm. I mean, just hours and hours and hours and hours of outreach. Um, you know, you're, you're again, even just again, amassing the lists, if you, oh, yeah. you know, or you buy the list and that's another, you know, money that, you know, that you're spending. I mean, it, it's gotta happen one way or another if you're going to do the outreach, mm -hmm. if you're gonna do the outreach. And so I think a lot of people think, oh my God, like that. And, and okay, also I want to say, in saying this, like I'm also not trying to intimidate people. I really want you to know that this is possible for you to do. And in fact, I often teach people um, as part of my consulting. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I will teach you, I can teach you how to do some of this stuff. And I'm happy to, because I think that more authors need to be empowered to do this because they're not going to have a publicist be offered by their press, or if they do, the publicist may not be very good yeah. or may not give two craps about your work. And you also have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those people may, may be putting in that minimal effort because they may not be getting big bucks yeah. for their effort. And that you have to understand that that might be the case. Like, and, and do your best maybe not to hold it against them, but if you want to, then, you know, yeah, so, I can't stop. Yeah, but it's true. You have to be your own champion and you have to go yeah. into this realizing that not everyone's going to give a shit 
about you and your work as much as you. But even though I tend to want to disagree a lot of the time because I want to be optimistic, sometimes that's the reality of it. A majority of the time is is you have to fend for yourself in many ways. But I do appreciate, I want to give you a shout out for actually starting that series. I know that, um, that you're actually doing your own behind the scenes posts on what you've learned from this. So I'm going to point people to that as well in the episode description because it's very generous of you to to just give out that resource as well, given that um, this has been kind of a, you know, I don't want to, I was going to say Herculean task, but that would have been inappropriate given everything that we've been through during this conversation. <laughs> it's been a, it's been an incredible, an incredible thing that you've gone through, you know, working on this project and everything. Um, but lastly, I just want to ask you what is on the horizon for you? What's, uh, what's coming up ahead on the uh, Reagan agenda? Sure. So, um, so I, at some point here, I am going to kind of wind down the the outreach and stuff. I mean, in, in a lot of respects, I, I sort of have, um, you know, the outreach isn't so much building lists as it is at this point, like seeing different opportunities come up in my various social media feeds. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, this person's got a new podcast or, oh, this, I hadn't heard of this outlet before. Maybe I'll reach out to them and doing it on a kind of one-off basis where I'll just, mm-hmm. you know, drop my post-release media kit link and, you know, a couple words and see, you know, what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do intend hopefully pretty soon here to get back to, to drafting the memoir. So I'm still just, I mean, not just, I'm still 18 chapters in, but that was the case the last time I think I talked to you, <laughs> yeah. but that's because I, I mean, look, you, as a full-time employee somewhere else, mm-hmm. you only have, I mean, I was working two jobs basically oh. from October, November of last year up until I want to say like a month or two ago. Oh my word. Um, yeah. Because that's what PR is. Like if you're really doing it justice, it's going to be, it's going to feel like a second job, mm-hmm. granted a part-time job, but it's going to feel like a second <laughs> yeah. job because it is, because it is work. Um, and so I'm hoping to kind of take, take that time that I was devoting to that effort and shift it back to, you know, focusing on drafting my memoir again. But that being said, um, I do have a couple uh, readings coming up. Um, one, I believe, is going to be the end of October. Then I'm going to be doing a sort of like interview slash reading with uh, a colleague of mine from Las Vegas um, at the beginning of November. That's going to be kind of more like the... So I had the launch party that was really like fun and like what I wanted a launch party to be. Mm. This would be more of like the buttoned up, like professional, <laughs> like, fancy I'm an author yeah. you know kind of nonsense. um but but working with somebody that that uh I've I've really enjoyed uh working with in the past albeit not in a on a public platform mm-hmm. per se but uh somebody who I th- his name is Greg who I think um is gonna kind of because he's he's actually he's been a journalist and he's a creative writer mm-hmm. and so I think he's gonna be able to really shape uh, an event that's going to be pretty interesting um, and hopefully be able to give, you know, an, another perspective on the work. Mm. Um, and then in April, I currently have in the works, it's very early stages, but um, I'm kind of grouping together 
uh, a bunch of fellow writers who write about survivorship. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be doing an event that is going to be, I'm pretty sure, hopefully a fundraiser Mm -hmm. um, for at least one organization that supports uh, survivors. And we're going to be doing it in April because April is National Poetry Month and it's also National Sexual Assault uh, Awareness and Prevention Month. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't so know those that. two months, yeah, are it, it, they, they're both both things are represented in the month of April. And so mm-hmm. um, I've just started like the early processes of this. And in fact, tomorrow I'm supposed to be getting on the the Zooms <laughs> with um, the folks at Only Magazine. Oh, so cool. they had a pitch like they opened up for pitches um of various different kinds of projects and i had already started working on this but i was like you know like it might be cool to get these folks involved um they had done a a a call for folks after the overturning of roe versus wade Mm -hmm. for folks writing about um abortion stories Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, well, it seems like they might be wanting to go in sort of like a social justice direction, at least to some degree. And so mm-hmm. maybe there's a way that they would be interested in working with me and this group that I've formed on getting this reading slash fundraiser mm-hmm. kind of together. And maybe we'll do something else in conjunction with it. And yeah. so I pitched it and they, they wrote back and said they were interested. And so tomorrow we discuss and we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Um, but I'm looking forward to that and, you know, just building more relationships. I think, you know, when it comes to, to this endeavor, the, the biggest and most important thing that you can do as your own advocate, as a writer for your own writing is, is just the things that sell, you know, everybody's like, oh, nobody really knows what sells books. And, and yeah, okay, maybe that's true to an extent, but I can tell you two things that help. And that's, you know, building your brand if you are so inclined um but most importantly building relationships and a really amazing salesperson Mm. (laughs) yeah um you know one of the least smarmy um best like i don't typically like salespeople. i i I don't think many of us do but Mm. this this person who taught me that his name is brad um you know brad taught me that many years ago and uh and, and, you know, he, he was right, man. And, and, uh, it works across the board in every aspect of life. You know, if you treat people with dignity and respect and you build relationships with them and you try to help others, um, you'll find maybe not everybody, but a lot of people, um, will treat you in kind yeah. and, uh, and help you along in your efforts and in your journey. And so that's, I'll, I'll leave that there. Oh, that's wonderful. I appreciate that note because that's a good note to end on. But I want to thank you so much, Reagan, uh, for, you know, once again, this really powerful and and brutal and beautiful work that, that encompasses so much, but also for being a really awesome supporter of Arts Calling and really like helping me get this thing rolling at the very, very beginning. 
it's been really a, a remarkable journey and i'm just really grateful for your uh for your support and for being awesome on the internet and uh and helping <laughs> out helping get the word out speaking of you know like um advocating and, and championing uh work as well but uh yeah anytime you got anything else going on please feel free to let me know happy to to have you on here so that we can uh, keep chatting but uh it feels like time flies like <laughs> time just yeah. completely goes yeah and it doesn't help that I I'm I tend to be very long winded, and that's one thing that has not changed since the first time that we did it. No, but and I, in fact, you know, I want to thank you because you know, your, yours was the first podcast that I was on, and so oh, yeah, you know, yeah. you extended me this opportunity, and now we get to have this little reunion, and I was happy to help. Um, and and I just love seeing other people's passion projects just take off, and if there is any little way that I can help or um, you know, kind of promote other people's efforts. I, I really try to do that. Mm. I mean, not for bad people. If you're a bad person, don't reach out. <laughs> GM's close. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for, for the truly, you know, genuinely kind and, and uh, enthusiastic, you know, I, I could tell right away when we, when we initially talked last year around this time that, you know, you just, you just have this, this enthusiasm and, and vibrance for this community and you've, You've built this podcast. You didn't know poets were as thirsty as they are, and now you know. <laughs> and I'm happy to have, have made you aware. You, uh, you released the hordes of poets, and it was the best <laughs> thing did. because, yeah, I mean, there is such a, a need, um, and I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be, you know, just kind of plugged into that community now because I've learned so much about poetry that it makes me feel like my my education began this last year. You know, and you were a key part of that. So I really, I'm really thankful for that. It's been such a blast. Like, well, thank you. And and I mean, really, again, getting back to that thing that we were talking about earlier about, you know, people needing to do their own work and helping themselves. Like, yeah. I yeah. just like maybe let some of the poetry horde know about <laughs> you, but you do all the work. Like your, your success is completely the result of your efforts like so please don't you know i mean i appreciate your gratitude but it's really you it's not me and uh you know and so you have so much to be proud of and uh, oh, i appreciate I'm it i appreciate it thank you so much reagan and again congrats on this awesome work uh really really can't wait to get the actual <laughs> notebooks <laughs> the actual books so that you know like i can i can admire the cover which was brilliant by the way and we'll have to talk about that next time that collaboration because i had some questions about it but anytime you want to stop by please let me know and uh yeah keep being awesome keep doing your thing Thanks. Hey, reunion, episode. <laughs> reunion episode success reunion episode. <laughs> all right well I'll, I'll leave you be i hope you enjoy your sunday and uh and let's chat on the internet sometime <laughs> yeah absolutely all right take thanks care. reagan take care bye